Hi, it's me, the Anthro Girl. In this episode, we dramatize the plight of the indigenous people of Australia. To tell this story is to explore the cruel reality of dispossession and displacement from family, home, and country. Tragically, we will recognize in the Pitanchara story similarities to the history of Native Hawaiians, Native Americans, and almost all First Nations people of the Americas. I am a Pitanjara man, a desert man. I remember the desert, the walking, the shade of a ghost gum tree, a handful of yawaluru berries to wet your mouth, the endless stretch of sand and spinifex. The desert is enough for a man, enough for his belly, his hands, his back, enough for his mind. In the desert, you have to see everything, because sooner or later, you will need everything. If you see a good mulati tree, put it in your mind, and you will find it again when you need to make a spear. In the hot months, when the ground is like burning coals, remember where you saw that taluanti plants, and your woman can weave sandals for you. I walked in the desert every day. I tucked into my mind what I saw, and when the night came and I was falling asleep, I saw these things again. And when I woke up in the morning, I always knew what I needed to do where I needed to go, what I wanted to have. And I could always have it, and it was always enough. That seemed like a long time ago, but it really wasn't. I was only two summers out of the desert, two years at the mission, when they caught me and took me to the courthouse. And the judge man said, You're a Pitanchara man, yeah? Pitanchara thief? And he read me a list of the things I had stolen. Seven boxes of matches, gasoline... A pair of trousers, tobacco, a billy can, a slab of bacon. And he said, isn't that right, Pitanjara man, you took these things? Yes, judge man, I told him. I took these things. And he said, why did you steal gasoline? My son's father-in-law, I told him. He works at the mission. He wanted to take their truck to go out to hunt wallaby. But the gasoline was empty. The judge man looked at me. Ah, he said. That was your boy's father-in-law who stole the mission truck. Did you get any wallaby? Nah, I told him. And then he sent me off to the Perth jailhouse. Those who have travelled and lived long among the Aboriginal people of Central Australia have often commented that stealing was virtually unknown among them. Theirs was a world in which theft made little sense. A small-scale hunting and gathering society, bands of close-knit kinsmen wandering the desert in search of kangaroo and emu and lizards, gathering wild grains and legumes, berries and fruit, with very well-defined rules about how the fruits of the hunt or the harvest should be divided among them. They wore no clothes, their tools made only of stone and bone, their shelters no more permanent than piles of brush to break the wind. So what would one steal? Nothing other than what already lay widely available in the desert sands. But there is likely more to it than that. Despite the austerity of their environment and their meager possessions, these Aboriginal people of Central Australia produced as lavish a body of myth and ritual as can be found anywhere in the world. It is a staggering cultural resource, and if there is any one theme that runs through the whole of it, 
it is that these desert people have an important role in creating the land on which they hunt and gather. They lost that role with the arrival of the Whitefella, and they entered a world where theft made sense. And it is this that is on the mind of our Pitantjara man as he sits in the dirt of the Perth jailhouse, recalling the myth of his ancestors, the two water snake men. Look at the floor of this jailhouse. It is dirt. It is desert dirt, but it is not desert. You see how we have walked on this jailhouse dirt. Here are our tracks, some toes and heels, and the long arch. Here. And one man squatted here on his knees. This is all nothing. It is not the same as the desert. It is not the same as the sand hills and the billabongs. It makes me think of the waterhole at Pukara. My ancestors made Pukara. They traveled through a muga grove to the place where the mali trees grow. The stone there is yellow. It makes us sad to see. It makes us weep. Because we know that our ancestors, the two water snake men, became sick there and they vomited up sweet yellow wama and their vomit turned to the yellow stone. And the two water snake men also turned to stone, and their spirits are still there in the stones of Pukara. I go there often with my brother and my son to remember the water snake men. We make a fire and clean the ground, and we clear away debris from the water hole, and we cut our bodies and let our blood drip onto the stone monuments to our ancestors. Our blood is like rain, and it will make the grevillea plant grow. And our people will have the sweet yellow sugar that comes from the gravelea flower. Our people will have wama. This is the way our ancestors made the land. They traveled the land and entered into it, forming the water holes and sand hills, the birds and the lizards and all the things that we would need. And they gave us knowledge of the land and showed us the way to keep it bountiful. All the desert is like this. The desert is part of a man, and a man is part of a desert. That is why the desert is enough for a man, and it is the reason the jailhouse is not enough. There are no water holes here, no goanna burrows, no mulati trees or talawanti plants, no emu, no kangaroo. Here there are only scuff marks in the dirt. If you want meat, if you want water, if you want tobacco, you don't find where to get it. There are no tracks. You just wait. You wait for the white fella to bring it. We don't know where he got it. He doesn't tell us how to find it. We sit here in the jailhouse dirt. But we are not part of it. Virtually every distinctive or prominent feature of the Australian landscape, and many more beyond, is a landmark. Something important happened there a long, long time ago, when the earliest ancestors first wandered across the land. Consider, for example, Emily Gap, or as it's known to the aboriginals, Unturqua. Unturqua is a narrow gorge of high stone walls, running approximately the length of a football field, just at the entrance to the gorge, marked by a very large stone, is the spot from which sprang the first leader of the Wichetti Grub people, 
a group of aboriginals who have a special relationship with a species of edible moth larvae, the wichetti grub. Unturqua is the place where they originated. There is a cave in the wall of Unturqua where the first leader performed a sacred ritual meant to ensure the abundance of wichetti grubs, and a rock painting nearby where the women of the group watched the ritual performance. The wall of the gorge is clefted in many places. These the leader made in order to safely store the sacred relics needed for the ritual. He guarded these relics from atop the large stone at the mouth of the gorge, watching there with his followers, who are represented by other, smaller stones. Not far away, the leader is said to have sunk holes four feet or so into the ground, which contain stones that represent the developmental stages of the wichetti grub. A band of redstone marks the spot where the leader threw eggs up into the clefted face of the gorge. It is also in this spot that he pounded up quantities of the grubs for food, and pebbles found here can sometimes be identified as the original eggs carried by the first wichetti grub people. This list could run much longer. A depression in the stone, a cluster of rocks, a deep fissure, a particularly large boulder... Every feature of Unturqua is part of a stone tableau that tells the story of the first ancestors of the Wichetti grub people. But it's not just a story, it's a script. For generations, the Wichetti grub people have reenacted the activities of the first ancestors. They walk where the ancestors walked and sit where they sat. They throw stone eggs up onto the wall of the gorge just as did their ancestors. And in the cave they perform the sacred ritual that is meant, as was the original, to ensure the abundance of wichetti grubs. Many words from Aboriginal Australian languages have made their way into English. Kangaroo, wallaby, koala, billabong, and boomerang are some of the better-known ones. One of the lesser-known is alcharinga, the dreaming. The dreaming is the time when the ancestors, the wichetti grub people, the two serpent men, and a host of others, traveled the land, shaping it and populating it with all of its flora and fauna, including people. The dreaming does not simply refer to the distant past, but embodies as well a concept of timelessness that resists the English mind. Wikipedia attempts to capture this idea of timelessness by equating the dreaming with the everyone, whatever that is. Maybe it's best to accept that the Alcharinga refers to a unique cultural experience, fully accessible only to the native people of Australia. Maybe it's enough to say that they believe that the myths and rituals given them by their ancestors enable them to enter the dreaming, to do the work of the dreaming, creating and recreating their world, just as did their ancestors when the dreaming began. The dreaming makes them stewards of the land, and along with that stewardship goes familiarity with the natural history of the desert in astonishing detail. Our Pitantjara man possesses that detailed knowledge of his land. A day in his life in the desert might well have looked something like this. This is how it was with me, a Pitantjara man, a desert man, before I came here to this jailhouse, before I became a thief. One day, my son said to me he wants to find a wife. But that is not easy, because these days, many of our people stay at the mission. I am a desert man. I did not like to go to the mission, but my son said, all the young women are at the mission. Okay, we will go soon, I told him. 
But first, we must go to the waterhole of the water snake men and prepare it, and water the stones with our blood. We did that, and when we were leaving, we passed through a muga grove. I told you about it before. It is not far from the place where the water snake men threw up sweet wama that turned to yellow stone. We passed through the mulga grove, and we found some dry spoor, day-old spoor, of the kangaroo. It was late then, so we said we would come back in the morning to track this kangaroo. When the morning came, we ate a little muniero seed and drank water. Then my women went off to gather acacia pods, and my son came with me to track this kangaroo. We followed a dry creek bed back toward the Muga Grove, but on the way, we came across some fresh emu tracks. We followed those tracks because that is better than old kangaroo spore. Soon, we came to a dry hole where the emu had scratched the creek bed to find water. We dug the hole deeper, and water filled into it, and we wanted to wait to see if the emus came back. There was only a mound of desert grass to hide behind, and it was far from the water hole. So I sent my son to get some pituri plants that grew near the Munga Grove, and we put them in the water. These plants make the emu confused, and he is slower to run away. Then we waited behind the grass. After a time, we heard the booming sound of an emu. He came down from the sandhills to the smell of the water and wanted to drink. I was behind him. I stood, the spear ready in my spear thrower. Little by little, I moved closer. When I was close enough, he turned and looked at me. He wobbled a little bit, like he wanted to run, but he wasn't sure. So I shot my spear. It was bad luck for me, because the spear snapped in half from the force of the spear thrower. My son ran forward to hurl his spear, but it was too late. The emu had found its head and was already racing away. I was mad because I knew why this spear broke. I knew it was a weak spear made from mulga wood that was cut in the wrong season. I was mad at myself. It was my fault we did not have the emu, but I said to my son, I want to go and get the root of an ironwood tree to make a new spear, a good spear. Then we went to the place where the ironwood tree grows, and I found a good tree, one that I knew would have good roots. I dug down, I found a long straight root, a root as long as me. My son saw the tracks of a goana. We followed those tracks through the sand and the spinnex until we came to the place where the goana made its burrow. The tracks went in, but didn't come out, so we knew the goana was in his burrow. And we dug him out. It was a big lizard, as big as my leg. When we got back to the camp, we cooked the goana, and the women had acacia pods to roast. We drank water from the billabong. I started to work on my new spear, peeling the bark from the ironwood root. It was good. Even though I lost the emu, everything was good. I was content. The golden age of exploration of Central Australia occurred in the latter half of the 19th century. These are the names of some of the explorers who perished there in the hinterlands of starvation, thirst, and exposure. Alfred Gibson, Charles Wells, Charles Gray, George Jones, Ludwig Becker, William John Wills, Robert O'Hara Burke. These and others who died, as well as many more who barely escaped with their lives, entered the desert with well-provisioned expeditions, often including botanists, cartographers, physicians, or other men of science. 
outfitted with firearms, livestock, and many more material advantages, all too often to endure incredible hardship and deprivation, all too often to die. The native cultures of Central Australia arrived as long as 65,000 years ago in Arnhem Land in northern Australia. In all that time, the archaeological record reveals only minor variations in the way they manufactured their Stone Age tools. The dreaming was their blueprint for survival, and year in and year out, it guided them to the water holes and the mulga groves, the okra quarries and animal dens of the desert. But change came. Steel tools, cotton clothing, canned food, matches, and a flood of other Western commodities swept the native peoples into a new world. Sheep farms and railroads and automobiles broke their connection to the land. The dreaming provided no guidance in that world. It revealed no secrets of survival. In all the days since those changes began, the story of native peoples in Australia has been a harsh one as it seems invariably to be among peoples acculturated and assimilated to a dominant society. Any culture can collapse. Any culture can find itself in a place where sacred texts, written or oral, no longer give good guidance. There are no charters, no constitutions, no creeds, no pacts or declarations that escape the threat of radical social change. Such threats can arise from without or within and they need not be big or obvious. They can go undetected and still be fundamental. It has been compellingly argued, for example, that the leading edge of fundamental irreversible cultural change among the aboriginals of Australia was the wide distribution of steel axes to replace stone axes. Who would have guessed? The moral of the story for us here at AnthroGirl is that sooner or later, irreversible cultural change is inevitable. Can we see it coming and respond intelligently with minimal destruction? The answer seems to be probably not, because we never even really consider the question. I am a Pitantjara man, a desert man. I remember the desert. My children were born there. They grew up there. You remember I told you my son wanted to have a wife? He didn't find one in the desert. He found one at the mission, a Natanjara girl, a worker. She washes mission clothes. Now they have their baby. My wife, she likes to stay with the baby. She doesn't like to gather acacia pods anymore. She likes to eat from cans. And me too. I like some trousers to wear, and tobacco to chew, and matches to make a fire. I like a lot of things. Sometimes, I think about the two water snake men. I should go clear the water hole. I should clean the stones and bleed on them. But now, I am a jailhouse man. And I am done talking. Now the white fella is bringing us biscuits to eat, and jerked beef, and our water in billy cans. Thanks for listening. I'm Emily Pick, and I voice the Anthro Girl. This show was created by me, our screenwriter, Edith Swenson, and our anthropologist, Dr. S.B. Swenson. Check the show notes for a bibliography on today's show. And if you liked our visit, please leave us a review.